So welcome to another fantastic episode of The Inspirational Runner. Who would have thought we would have reached number 20? But here we are, podcast number 20, and this week's Inspirational Runner is Lauren O'Malley Bannon. An amazing woman who took on single-handedly the Marathon de Sables Ultramarathon, which is 157 miles across the desert in scorching heat. Really looking forward to listening to this woman's story. Um, she hasn't had it easy in the past and she's come through a lot. I managed to put herself through even more agonizing pain through one of the toughest foot races on the planet. I found it really challenging over the last few weeks to try and fit the podcast in. So what I've decided to do is actually take on the challenge of cycling to all the inspirational runners um, going forward for the rest of the summer anyway to see how that goes. Before we go into the podcast, I just want to give the Monaghan 10 Miler a shout. It's on Sunday the 12th of August. It is run by the Monaghan Town Runners. Phenomenal run, my favourite 10 mile run of the year. That's got nothing to do with the squealing pig and the pints of Guinness that we have afterwards. This is a fantastic course and not one to be missed. So hope to see you all there. Monaghan 10 Miler, Sunday 12th of August. Let's go and see what Lauren's got to say for herself. Um, so Lauren, <laughs> thank you for welcoming me into your home. Welcome. Um, so I want to try and paint a bit of a picture just so the audience gets to know you a little bit. Okay. Um, so I'd like to strip it right back to the beginning. Um, and you used to be into athletics a bit early on. Yeah. Around your teenage years. What did you do around then? Um, so I was a competitive runner um, and swimmer and did high jump. So I was in track and field, basically American track and field. Um, tried my hands at a few different sports coordination wasn't always a strong point but bizarrely um, despite the fact that I was always kind of tall and gangly I was able to master the high jump and did well qualified for states and stuff um, in Massachusetts um, at a young age so that was it was yeah, good. You lived in Boston then? I grew up in Boston yeah, yeah I was born in Boston. And they do like they really do focus on sports a lot more in America than they do over here. I so. definitely think yeah, I'm not in elementary school, which is like the equivalent of primary school, but definitely junior high, yeah. high school. It's American sports is a big thing. Um, my mother is not athletic at all, but my dad um, had a bit of a military background. He was a soldier. He'd served in Vietnam and he's just big into discipline. And I think sports bring discipline. So he yeah. was, that was important to him that we sort of picked a sport and kind of stuck with it um and he would have been very supportive of whatever sports were that we were involved with um he was a runner so um yeah. it was just something maybe my older brother and I picked up on and then I have a younger brother as well he didn't pick up on the run on as much but it was definitely something that was there um in the family and we what, kind what of type of running did he it. do was he when we were kids, he didn't do a pile of running. He had been a cross-country runner. Yeah. Um, and American cross-country distances, I think, are a bit longer than cross-country here when the kids are younger. He had been a cross-country runner. Um, and then, obviously, being in the military for a little while, he yeah. had kept up his fitness. And then he, when we were kids, he, he probably wasn't that fit. But he definitely did that whole like midlife crisis at 40 and got back into fitness. <laughs> And then he, he worked his way back up to marathon distances. So then as I became an older teenager, like into my 20s, my dad was running marathons and stuff. So quite a strong influence there. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, I mean, he only finished um, marathoning about maybe six years ago. Um, so and he's 70 now. So he did Class. his last marathon was a ring of Kerry marathon over here. Class. And he did some of the iconic ones, Boston, New York and um, Chicago and different ones. So, yeah. Brilliant. 
So just before the podcast there, you were showing me uh, an x-ray yes. of a screw <laughs> in your and foot. It is a screw, it's not a pen. <laughs> and, um, and that sort of takes me to um, sort of in your teenagers, then you had a brush with death, Yeah, really. I definitely did. I mean, actually, I suppose even before that, myself and my two brothers were both, uh, the three of us were born with uh, a rare genetic immune problem. So from very early age, for me, I think I was three or four, we had to go for um, blood treatments, which were pretty, I mean, we just grew up doing it. So mm-hmm. it was pretty straightforward to us, but they were painful. Like as little kids, um, they were given intramuscularly, which means like if you've ever gone on vacation and had those um, mm-hmm. injections into the muscle, they're sore. We had to get those every other week throughout our whole childhood. And then as teenagers, we got too big. They couldn't fit enough volume of the product that we needed into injections and at this stage we were getting like multiple injections into the bum not not pleasant sitting down after those but so we transferred them to intravenous treatments and it was a big commitment I mean like looking back I think it definitely set the stage for a good pain threshold um and it was one of those things where like I guess you could have gone either way you could have been like a sick kid um or not and I definitely wasn't. It wasn't something okay. we talked about. We didn't like make an issue of it. We, I went to practices and then went for like, went, checked myself into the hospital, got treatments, took the train home. You know, I like even from kind of a young age, I would take the subway into Children's Hospital in Boston, get my treatment and come home. It just became normal to you. Became totally normal. And it was something that like, we didn't want to be a sick kid. You weren't focused yeah. on it. Um, and then sports was great for me. It was, you know, great discipline, as I said, but Unfortunately, when I was 19, um, I was actually at, away at college my first year in university in America and um, was run over, basically, by a drunk driver. Uh, we had left the same bar. I was walking. It was wintertime um, along the side of the road, and he plowed into me. Wow. So um, it was just really unfortunate. He didn't stop. Um, he basically left me for dead in the road and I was very lucky because it was quite remote, like the place that had happened. It took a long time for the ambulance to get there and stuff. Most of my injuries were orthopedic. I had a head injury, um, which thankfully, although I, I did have, um, a concussion and had been knocked unconscious and I had fractures in my skull, um, both the base of my skull and in my face. I was lucky because I didn't have like a full brain injury. I mean, I was regained kind of... So he didn't just brush you, he really did knock you down. Oh yeah, he hit me at speed. And I mean, I remember afterwards the police in the hospital, I was in the hospital for a really long period of time afterwards, they came in to see me and they had basically said it was like aerodynamics. Like if I I must have heard the car tire screech, I turned around and got hit head on, face on. But if I hadn't, he would have gone over me with the car. Mm. So my face hit the windscreen and I flew behind and landed behind the vehicle. If I had been hit from behind, the likelihood was I would have landed face down on the pavement and the car would have gone over the top of me and would have definitely killed me. So although I had a lot of broken bones and most of them lower limb, um, because the impact was my knees, the bumper hit my front knees, so both kneecaps were broken, and then my left tibia and fibia were broken, and my right tibia and then my facial bones, I had broken eye socket, broken cheek, and then my skull was fractured as well. So I was a disaster. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here and amazed because you've, you've had such a great recovery. Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, I guess in a sense, I did have a lot of operations. Um, I had metal rod fitted through the whole left leg and I had my right leg, my knee had to be like pinned and I had... Um, 
to stay for quite a long period of time in a machine, constant passive mm-hmm. motion machine. So sleeping and stuff was a nightmare. If the kneecap, and this was probably technology has improved since then, but the CPM machine basically just moves your legs gradually like an inch at a time while you're sleeping so that your kneecap doesn't heal straight. Um, so it was brutal. Yeah. I mean, I came home from the hospital in a wheelchair. I had to drop out of college. I had to move home, which was traumatic. I didn't want to be home again. I wanted to be with my friends. Yeah. Um, my parents' house in Boston wasn't accessible for a wheelchair, so I spent a ton of time up and down on my bum. I couldn't get a wheelchair to the floor that had a bathroom, so I had to like <laughs> scoot on my bum just to get anywhere with these two big broken legs. And extremely dramatic for especially at that age. It really was. Yeah, it was. It was an awful shame in a sense. I felt like I was in a good place fitness wise, but. Um, I think that right away I had this thing like again like it wasn't going to define me and I Mm -hmm. did feel very sorry for myself at one stage I had to be moved from the hospital to a rehab because I couldn't go home Um, they like sent somebody out to the house to assess whether it was viable for somebody with the injuries I had to come home and they came back and said no there's too many stairs should it won't work so I was put in like a rehabilitation hospital and my roommate was like 90 she had alzheimer's she had a broken hip i was a kid everybody in the rehab hospital was really you know elderly basically um and it was almost like a nursing home and i just was like laying there one night and somebody had come in to visit i don't even remember specifically now who but i pretended to be asleep because i felt sorry for myself i just didn't feel like i even wanted to engage and then that night i just had this like kind of epiphany where i was like hold on like what are you doing here? You, this is shit. You're not, you're like pushing people away from you. And so I kind of came back around and I just decided people thought I was crazy that I was going to move to Ireland. And like, this was like, I have the last name O'Malley, but we weren't Irish. (laughs) None of my family, you know, my, my aunt and my grandparents have been to Ireland, but my dad hadn't even been here or my mom. And like, I just said like, that's it. Yeah. I'm going to move there. I'm going to study. I didn't know anybody here, but it seemed like a great idea and it gave me something to focus on. So, that so what, was it. what made you pick Ireland? Probably the last name O'Malley. <laughs> no, I, I think like, you know, Boston's a really Irish city. Yeah. You know, everybody, we grew up with tons of Irish people. Um, I thought Irish people were nice. That was amazing. So when I ran the marathon back in, in Boston, Liverpool, yeah. um, I made sure I wore an Ireland singlet. Yep. And it was the best move I'd ever made. Absolutely. <laughs> they, just, they just took me in. Yep, adopted. So it was phenomenal. So it was. So you had to re teach yourself how to walk obviously after going through that yeah I mean I had nerve damage was my biggest issue so bones will heal nerves are not as um obedient I guess is the Mm. word and that was a huge challenge because the nerve damage is for life um it can if you if you experience nerve recovery within the first year then that's great and there you go you've got your you know your mobility back but if you don't um most often that nerve is dead and there is no sort of recovery of it so that that's where I was left um I recovered to a really significant degree but there's a threshold I never have bypassed and so I have permanent like foot drop in one of my feet it means that just there's not full flexion and I I have like residual weakness I can't lift that foot so that foot is the one that you have mentioned has just been fitted with a new screw (laughs) so it's forever injured um, yeah, yeah. my brothers will laugh and tell the stories like I trip up and down stairs. I trip walking from here to there. I'm like a disaster, but I mean, I kind of try and say it's not my fault. It's the foot. Yeah. <laughs> what age did you come to Ireland then? 
So I literally came here with still broken bones. Wow. I came here as quickly as possible after the accident. I was hit by the car in February and I moved here in September. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it was great. I, it was great, but it was too soon in hindsight. Um, the pressure on the rod in my left leg was too significant too quickly. I ended up having to have surgery in Cork by myself. It's like this American kid. And I like woke up one morning and I saw like a lump and I was like, oh, that doesn't look right. One of the screws had actually started backing out because I was already back like trying to do so much on the yeah. rod. But um, I got the screws taken out here in Cork and then I, I kept the rod for a few years afterwards. And then I was lucky, I mean, in a sense, the heel, that it healed so well, I got the rod taken out. So now my only piece of metal is the screw in my foot. <laughs> it, of, well, it did take a lot of courage, obviously, to move over to Ireland on your own it, after going through that. It did, but I think like... After coming through that, I felt like a different person. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had been through something that made me older or wiser or, I don't know, different kind of than my friends. I felt like more mature. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe not, you know, as the case may be. But I definitely felt like I could kind of do anything. It's like almost I felt, a bit of a wake up to really yeah, what life was about. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I just thought like, look, I've done challenging things. Um, I'm kind of comfortable with myself and like who I am and... I had been like in a bad place and I thought like this was a fresh start mm-hmm. too. Like nobody oh, yeah. knew me and it was nice to come here and like make friends and be able to be whoever I wanted to be without kind of being the kid that had been hit by the car, do you know, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was challenging, but in a good way. So you started tracking that then did you track after that? Or? Yeah, I guess. So when I moved over here, I kind of was running and stuff, living in Cork, nothing major going out for a 5k just to keep fit. You make that sound very blase. Yeah, well, (laughs) for what was to come, it looks blase now. Yeah. But yeah, probably that was more just to balance the alcohol intake because moving here was amazing in that regard. Like I could drink and I could go to bars and this was great. This was a great place to live. This is in Boston. What age is it? 21. 21. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Cork was definitely not 21. So (laughs) I think it was 19 when I got here. So yeah, I mean, it was great. I... I would just go out and do bits and pieces, but I started backpacking in Europe because the the world seemed like it was your oyster when you were here. And, um, the more I saw, the more I wanted to do. So I guess the biggest thing for me was Morocco. I got this interrail pass and it took you to Morocco. And I, that was the first time I sort of set eyes on the desert and saw this like vast open area. I thought this was amazing and just kind of saw things like that. I never anticipated seeing, and it opened up a whole new realm of challenge for me then. Yeah. So when you, when you were running then, previous to that, you were doing like 5Ks and 10Ks. Yeah. And have you, because you live in Armagh now. Uh-huh. Is this Armagh? It is, it is yeah. <laughs> yep. um, have you done many of the local runs around here then? Or? Oh, yeah. I mean, from I've lived here, I've been here now 16 years. And yeah, I mean, I've done loads of the local 5 and 10Ks. And Have you got a favourite one? Um... I love all the different kind of runs, I guess, locally. I did one there last year. I can't think of what it's called. It was a night run in Kilbrony. I think it was 26 Extreme organized it. It was great. It was like maybe a 10K distance. Um, It was phenomenal. It was just something totally different. I kind of like ones that are a bit different. The road races get boring to me. I like something with a bit of a challenge. And that one ended with beer and cake. So oh, that was so, good. <laughs> they're, they're really good for that. They are really good for that. So you, you start doing a bit of mountaineering then? 
Well, that is that came from another adventure. So I lived here. I left um, when my visa was up because I had a student visa. I studied here for a little while. And then when my visa ran out, I left Ireland, went back to America, but couldn't settle because the world was too big and I needed to go. So I applied to teach in Thailand and I moved on my own um, to Thailand. I didn't speak a word of Thai and I took a job as an English teacher. Talk about challenging. Like you're just like thrown in at the deep end. It's a classroom full of Thai kids. They didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any (laughs) Thai. I was just like, oh, what do I do? And some woman came in and handed me a leather strap and I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And she's like, hit, hit children. <laughs> I was like, ah. So um, when I lived in Thailand, I had no TV, no computer, no telephone. Brilliant. I had nothing. So every day after teaching, much to the dismay of the only other English speaker, it was a girl from London who was teaching in a different school, but they put in the same house as me. I went for a run. And she said, you're nuts. It's too hot. Like, how are you even running here? Mm. And I said, like, this is prime opportunity we have nothing else to do so let's run so she was resistant in the beginning but in the end she caved and every night after school we ran and it was great so um when my contract ended at that school i took to the road and um ended up literally like on the slow boat to china i traveled up through laos to china yeah Got to China, was thinking of Vietnam, and then something happened along the way, and we ended up off course and ended up going to Tibet and uh, ended up on Mount Everest, as you do. And then, um, yeah, there was an Irish flag, and I thought, oh, I better introduce myself. At that point, I had already planned to move back, had applied to Queens, been accepted, and was moving back. I met my husband. I was trekking, trekked to Everest Base Camp, met him, was on a fly-by-night stay at Everest Base Camp. Mm -hmm. Moved on to Annapurna, did part of the Annapurna circuit there in Nepal, trekking, and then um, did quite a bit of trekking when we were over there in Nepal. So, yeah, so I can't go past it because he might take the hump if you don't mention him. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, yes, so then I ended up uh, meeting and marrying <laughs> Banjo Bannon, who was on um, his successful summit attempt there in 2003. So the time you seen the Irish flag, he just popped over to say hello. That was his successful. That was his successful summit. Yep. So he had been there once little, before. Little did you know? Nineteen ninety eight. Little did I know, like where the future leads. But mm. yeah, it was an adventure completely. And then when I moved back here, we were just climbing partners really to begin with. Um, and he knew I was fed enough because I was had been there and been on Everest, and you know, so he asked me to go with him to South America. So we went climbing. Um, he taught me that winter the basics of ice climbing. So it was like a crash course. <laughs> and we went to South America and we went to some pretty big mountains and there was a lot of hairy moments and yeah. it was full on. And then the following year, um, I went with him as the only female on the Irish K2 expedition. So took trekking to a whole new level, checked out. Um, and what did you get out of the trekking? Like, did you find it really just, wow, this is just so wild? Yeah, I mean, it's so different to running because it's such a bigger commitment. Um, the part I like, which is kind of strange to people, I think a lot of people find this really bizarre about me, is I like the back to basics. I like the camp atmosphere. Mm. I just read this book um, called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. He's Very a good. local author from Boston. And the book was supposed to be about PTSD. He started it to write about soldiers returning from war. But actually what it turned into is almost something completely different. And it's about how like human beings are like drawn 
to the camp type atmosphere, how we're like drawn to the communal living, how actually like we do better in a sense when we are in a tribal setting. Yeah. And that's what I like about trekking. Uh, I remember listening or reading, see, they listening to a podcast or reading about longevity one time. Mm-hmm. And they'd done all this research into longevity. And it was the biggest thing that came out was that situation scenario. That, yeah. That sort of camp community. Yeah. And places that were very sort of remote and held that community. It was the places where people lived longer. Yeah. It wasn't really down to their um, genes and DNA as such. Yeah. But you can relate to that. Completely. I mean, it's, it's ingrained in us. Big time. And yeah. it's it's funny because people think like, oh God, that must be horrendous. Like not having a shower and like everybody's sitting in a mess tent and you're all crowded in and having to share your food. and But bizarrely, you know, maybe in the beginning it's tough because it's, it's a whole different challenge to your senses. The sights and smells and yeah. like communal sleeping and all that kind of stuff. But when you get into it, actually, it's very comforting and it's something I like feel like I kind of do well with, um, which actually <laughs> sort of suits well because it, it when you do the longer term stuff, you know, K2 was a big commitment. You're in a tent for weeks and a lot of people would think, God, that's just misery. But you almost get totally in tune to that yeah, and it's nearly harder to come back. You're yourself really, aren't you? To big time, like, yeah. Because so. at the end of the day, we are part yeah. of nature. Yep. And we have domesticated ourselves into living, into homes, etc. So that's why uh, a lovely walk in the mountain feels so good. Oh, big time. Because you, yeah. you're, you're connecting yourself to that sort of environment. Yeah, and I think sports can be quite like a solitary mm. um, commitment too. And, and running certainly can be, you know, because like when you're doing your training and stuff, it's very difficult sometimes to link in with the training partner whose schedule suits yours. And so you can find yourself and don't get me wrong. I also really relish time alone out doing big runs and stuff like that. But there's definitely something nicer of a communal suffering. (laughs) And you've been sort of unlucky throughout your path so far. So that didn't really stop when you went mountaineering because you had your second sort of... Yeah, well, yeah. So health, like... I actually, in China, I will tell you Is it actually safe to be here, no? Yeah, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people would question that. In China, I had my horoscope done. And, um, I mean, he didn't speak a lot of English. And I definitely didn't speak any Mandarin. But it basically came back that I was born in 1978. And it was the year of the horse. And I was the horse with the broken leg. And, like, just according to my astrological... (laughs) And that is, like, so the truth. But, yeah, we, we had kind of tapered the climbing when kids came along. I have two little boys. Um, and well, I say we, I tapered the climbing, my husband continued, but, um, and then we sort of had a brief resurgence and had got back out doing a few bits and pieces. And then um, I had been on a bouldering um, trip just here in the Mourn Mountains, but it wasn't just like your average bouldering where you take mm. the kids and you're jumping in. We were like really pulling on the ropes and pulling up <laughs> and a bit extreme. And afterwards, I felt a bit strange. Um, and about a week later, it transpired that I had um, a massive blood clot in my chest. So they treated it at the time. And they couldn't ever really find the cause. But they were pretty certain that was the cause. Yeah. Time rolled on. I got back into training, um, swimming, running, all the rest of it. And then it struck again. And this time, it was much more severe. Um, it was like pretty, pretty hairy. And so the blood clot basically lodged in my shoulder under the clavicle. It's exceptionally mm. rare, but it was cutting off uh, the blood flow to my right arm. It was like really significant. So I spent... That's a strong main blood flow. Yeah, there, it's a DVT, it? you know, it's a deep mm. vein. So it's, it's a big vein pumping to the heart. 
So in the end, I, I spent just shy of a month in the Royal Victoria Hospital. I had to get a graft of my groin artery transplanted into my chest and get my top rib removed and the muscle across the front of my chest removed. And in doing so, it was extremely like finicky particular surgery there was multiple yeah. surgeons working they punctured my lung and <laughs> the recovery was horrendous i mean like when i first i was on morphine for months afterwards kind of when i first came around from it i just thought shit this is like not gonna work this i'm not gonna get back into sports after this one yeah. this is bad i couldn't even let people brush my hair the pain like went through my whole body <laughs> and then just like that i kind of like started walking just here in South Armagh, like maybe Sleeve Gullion or Ravensdale and just like felt myself getting stronger, felt like the punctured lung had healed, could breathe normally again. And like, just start thinking like maybe if I ran one mile, I could pick it back up. And so I ran, mm. my first mile was just here, like a loop kind of near my house and panting and sweating and miserable. And then I thought, well, maybe I could do two. And then it just grew from there. So, so the, all these things have happened to you. Yeah. Um, up to that point. So what made you then decide <laughs> that you were going to impede more punishment on yourself by selecting to run most arguably the most difficult foot race on the planet, really? Yeah. Marathon to Sables. Yeah. I, well, I had worked with a guy years and years ago who had done it. And I remembered him talking about it and I was really intrigued by it. Then I saw something on TV one time and I recorded it and I was here and I was like beat up, taking morphine on the couch and I watched it and I thought like, I could do that. I just had it in my head. Like, I don't know why, I don't know how, but I could definitely do it. Like whatever it took to train to get there, I would be capable of it. Like I knew that somewhere deep in my like own psyche. And there is a thing that this kind of goes back to where I have like this bizarre detached reality thing and my brothers and family laugh about this. When I was a kid, there was an advertisement on TV I saw about trying out for the Olympic luge team. So I don't know if you know what the luge is, but it's that like weird sled. It's not even like a bobsled. It's like worse because it's not enclosed. It's like this sled half sled that you lay on and you go at like a death trap. It's a death trap. And you go like (laughs) hundred miles an hour down like an ice luge. And I saw that there was tryouts for the Junior Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. And I straight away was like, oh my God, I could so do this. So I applied and didn't say anything to anybody. And then the application pack came and I sent away and I got like a time and a date to go to Lake Placid to try out. And I like went down to the dinner table and I was like, guess what? And my parents were like, no, you've never even been on a luge. You can't try out for the Olympics. Like... And so obviously they didn't take me. I mean, it was like dead, dead of winter, like an eight hour car ride cost a fortune to do the tryouts. And they were like, you know, working class, like, what are you even talking about? To this day, I firmly believe that I could have made the Olympic luge team. I'm surprised they let you watch TV at all. I know. To be honest. I know. (laughs) I'm surprised too. It's like, quick, turn that over. Turn it off, turn it off. She might get inspired. But I think like watching that show about the Marathon de Salle and then knowing that my friend Ian had done it, I just like had this in my head. So I, about a year and a half after the big surgery, um, I just said like, you know, the kids were at an age where it was manageable. Um, they were up a little bit and I thought I, if I'm going to do it, I kind of have to commit. So I went online and looked and I was so disappointed because it was fully booked. 
um, for like the following two years. And then I well, noticed... Well, fully booked. Do you know how many that sort of caps that? Um, well... Like a thousand anyways. Oh, no, yeah, more. 1,300 or something that... like that. But what happens is life. Life happens. People commit and mm. they pay the deposit, which is hugely significant. But then they get pregnant or their wife gets pregnant or they lose their job or they get injured or it's a big time commitment. If you yeah. book it two years in advance or a year in advance, lots of stuff can happen that's yeah. going to prevent you from going. So when I went back online in October of 2016, I saw that there was spaces available from Ireland and I called them up and said, like the cutoff was like, this was October 31st and the cutoff was like November 1st or something ridiculous. Can I take one of those spaces? She said, well, yeah, but you've missed the whole thing. You've missed all the, like we offer these expos and we offer, you can pay in, in intervals. You're going to have to pay fully right now and you're going to have to just commit because the race is in April. And I, at this point, had never... So no training or anything at that stage? <sighs> I mean, at that stage, I could... missed it. I, yeah, I mean, at that stage, October 31st, I could run a 10K, but I couldn't run more than a 10K. <laughs> so I paid and I did. I said, fine, yeah. I'll take it. It's extremely expensive as well. Isn't it, it is crazy expensive. Yeah. Just shy of about four grand. Yeah. But I just said, right, this is it. This is my once in a lifetime. Ironically, this is where karma comes in. I didn't have the money, but I mean, I paid the money. I put it on a credit card, but I have this thing about money where it, it'll come from somewhere. Yeah. And, um, the guy that ran me over in Boston, there was a civil lawsuit attached to that case and he never paid up. He was brutal. You know, he was in and out and maybe would throw a couple hundred dollars down and then disappear for lengths of time and stuff. So I called home. I hadn't even said about the race yet. And I said, can you do me a favor and check if there's any money in that account? And it was almost the exact amount of the race. Brilliant. So I didn't pay a penny. You know, he paid. The guy that ran me over who broke my legs the first time I then paid his money <laughs> to break my legs the second time brilliant. but it was brilliant and because i had such a short period of time to train i took it so seriously yeah so there was no messing about i immediately got like immersed and i had such tunnel vision and it was like psychological physical it was the whole so what bit. what sort of things did you adapt to straight away then well, one thing I did, which was a mistake, and because my brother is like a competitive long distance runner, my older brother is a marathon runner here, he was like, I couldn't have done the training without him because he knew like right away I, I started jumping too far ahead of myself and I would have got injured. Almost within a day or two, I had tried to get up to like 10 miles and then 15 miles and I just kept trying to move the bar. And he was saying, no, 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 you're doing this all wrong. You know, you do still have time. This is what you need to do. So I did a lot of research, number one, mm -hmm. um, and I read a lot about people what who did... What type of things were you researching? Endurance. Yeah. Endurance training and just... So looking for people that had run the race maybe and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that, definitely that. I like listened to podcasts. I read blogs. I got books. Um, and I used my brother's wealth of knowledge about marathon training. Just immerse yourself in it. Immersed. I just thought if I can get to the distance of one marathon, then I know I can do this. But I, mean, mm. I knew I could do it anyways, but then I would be able to say to everybody, like, yeah, I have done a marathon now because people did freak. Some of my best friends thought I had taken like a total loss of my senses. <laughs> people were like genuinely worried about my mental health. They were like, this is like suicide and what are you doing? And are you like not happy? And what is wrong with you? And why would you want to die in the desert? But I just knew. I knew it was fine and I knew it was right for me. So I, the craziest part of my training was the fact that it was six days a week. I work full time and I have two kids. Mm -hmm. So it meant for me, 
to make the training work, I trained at weird times and people always found this disturbing, but I almost immediately started with the the backpack because the race is self-sufficient. So you have to run with all your own food and supplies. They only provide you with water and a basic shelter at night. So I knew I had to learn to change the way I ran because I would be running in a backpack. Like that's not normal. So the people around here definitely thought I had like a Forrest Gump thing going on. And they were like, oh, that's the weird American. And now she runs in a backpack. And now she runs in a backpack and a head torch at night. <laughs> like <laughs> She's wearing weird glowing gear and she's running the foothills of South Armada. This is not normal. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely, I think the locals thought I had lost my mind. But I just trained. I trained in every way I could. I trained mm-hmm. on my lunch break. I trained before the kids went to school. I trained after work. So the marathon sabers, not everyone's going to know what that is. Yeah. So what is the description of that race? So uh, it's six marathons in five stages or five days, basically. Mm-hmm. But um, you get out there before the race starts. You're it's sort 157 of 157 miles, is it? Mm-hmm. Is yeah, 56, that? something like that. Yeah. Miles. It um, it basically is 100% self-sufficient. You, They don't give you anything. And if they do they take something back off you for it. So even in the worst case scenario, if you're too thirsty and you need extra water, you're penalized. I mean, it is yeah. it is really harsh. But there's a reason they call it the world's hardest foot race and that's because they don't, it's not soft. Um, so I wrote a couple of facts down about it there. Yeah. Um, Patrick Bohr in 1984, he traversed the desert on foot. Mm-hmm. He walked 214 miles and it took him 12 days. Yeah. And obviously he was totally self-sufficient. So two years later, and they then created the race based on his traverse across the desert. Yeah. And that's why then it became self-sufficient. There was 23 people um, entered the race in 1986. And the people that won it were both French. The first female and first male were French. 2009, there was 1,000 people. But even today, there's only a 14% females enter the race. Yeah. And I think in so many ways, it's to do with the communal living thing. <laughs> it's so difficult for people to even conceive, particularly because it's primarily male. If you go to the race, you're just assigned a tent at random. Mm-hmm. So when I arrived in Morocco, I got off this privately chartered flight and was put in a coach out into the middle of the desert and just handed a number. And that was my tent. And all my tent mates were male. There are no facilities. What number was your tent? 100. It's kind of lucky number 100. Um, I mean, there was no, there is nothing. There is no facility. Um, There is no privacy. There's no toileting. There's no nothing. You just, you are there. It's rough and ready. It is rough and ready. I mean, and if there's any illusions about that, they're gone immediately. The bus makes one stop en route to camp. It pulls over at the side of the road. This completely barren desert. There's not a tree nor a shrub. There was about three women on my bus and about, 120 men and they all piled off and I like scooted down a little bit into the sand and kind of like squatted down to pee and when I stood up and turned around I was like oh Jesus <laughs> there's like 120 <laughs> nations of men peeing right at me I mean that was it from day one and when you get to the camp the rules are basically pee wherever you want try not to pee too close to your shelter and if you have to poo in camp here's a bag and drop it in the burn site and that's it you know, and once you're out on the trail, it's anywhere and everywhere. And quickly it becomes a bit of anywhere and everywhere. (laughs) But I think for women, that is a really difficult thing to overcome. But also I think that the race is probably something you're best doing roughly around the age I'm at, which is 40, coming 40, 
because you're not you're fit but you're not as impulsively fit as you are when you're younger mm-hmm. like you know how to taper your speed you know how to treat injuries you know how to like hold back a little bit but that age is also the age where you have kids and for women okay. it's really difficult to make that in fact of all the women I met during the race I didn't meet any other mothers um, I made friends I met women they were either younger than me or older than me I didn't actually meet any women my own age and I didn't meet any women with kids. And I think that was one of the things that yeah. struck me was the training. That's, that's a huge commitment. Huge commitment. Mm. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie to you. There was a burnout. There was a bit mm. of a burnout with it. If I had signed up for the race sooner, it may not have worked. But having such a short, sharp period of time yeah. probably worked for me in the end. Definitely. So the conditions, like you're in the desert. Yeah. So what temperature? We're not talking... Horrendous. Like, we're not talking old island weather. Here. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember it ever being racing daytime temperatures of like less than 40. Um, it definitely, on stage three, the first two marathons, I was okay. Um, and I was actually probably overly confident. I took them exceptionally slow. They were like a wog walking jog you know you weren't moving yep. and that's because the conditions themselves aren't even conducive to completely running anybody who says that they ran every step of that race is lying <laughs> because there's mountain stages that are so steeped that you you're actually roped you you use a rope to pull okay. yourself up it and the scree stages are horrendous on your ankles it's like trying to run down the morns and then there's the dunes and the dunes are your energy levels at that stage are shot completely but also it is like total loss of velocity, you know, like one step, two step, three step, and then you're nearly back to where you started. You know, the sand can be up to your knees. And you're carrying the kit. So your kit. for anybody that's interested in actually doing the race, yes. tell me what's in your kit. Yeah, well, the kit becomes an obsession. I mean, MDS people get crazy about this stuff. You like meet people that cut the actual... Um, long bit off their toothbrush and bring only the bristles because when you're running with the weight of it it's horrendous on your body um basically you have your sleeping bag and a sleeping mat if you choose to take one which i did um you have maybe a pack of baby wipes i had seven or eight baby wipes i had whittled it down to it was ridiculous Uh, my luxury item was my toothbrush and toothpaste you have a change of clothes for when you get to camp but you only race in the one outfit unless of course you really like carrying extra weight i would say 99.9 percent of the runners you arrive wearing one set of clothes and that's the same smelly set of clothes that you go home in (laughs) (laughs) and you you bring it in no you do bring a change of clothes for sleeping the reason for that is because that when the sun sets it actually gets quite cold yeah Um, but also that 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 gear has to dry and you would be wet and uncomfortable in the night. I mean, the top yeah. runners probably take it completely differently, but the average run-of-the-mill runner, you bring your change of clothes. Um, I wore the same socks the whole race. I didn't have a change of socks. I wore the same top, the same shorts, the same sports. The whole kit was one kit. That was it. I had just my change of clothes. Food to me was extremely important. I'm an eater. Yeah. Um, people said, oh, you have way too much food. And you're going to be burning a lot of calories and that. You just, crazy even calories. standing in the heat, you'd be burning calories. Yeah, so. crazy calories. So a lot of people you... lose their appetite and a lot of people can't eat. I was the opposite. I like joke with the guys that I'm friends with now and the girls, like I was the best little eater on the MDS. I never lost my appetite. I ran out of food. 
because I ate so much that actually in the final stage, only for the girl that ended up kind of completing the race with me, she didn't have the same appetite she was sharing. I would have been very hungry. <laughs> and what type of foods? Because you're carrying your food. Carrying so your food. I originally like looked at gels and all that kind of stuff. And then I just decided this is going to be miserable enough. I need food. Like gel is not going to make <laughs> me happy. I need like mental reward. So yeah, yeah. I just made my own food bags, um, Ziploc them. I like mix nuts, hard pretzels, um, salt is huge. Yeah, you like thanks. so crave salt out there that you'll like lick the bag afterwards, <laughs> like legitimately, like licking the like brown of the old peanuts off the bag. You just need salt. Yeah. So I then would have like jelly beans and stuff as a treat just to kind of like take the sharpness out of your mouth and stuff too. And then I started every day with a dry mountaineer and pack food that you just added boiling water to. I mean, that's the other thing. So you want to bring, you want to cook, you're going to bring your own stove, you're going to carry your own fuel, you've got to carry your own lighter. Mm. I mean, anything you're taking with you, you're taking with you and you've got it, you own it. The other rules about the race, which are ridiculous, but again, make it so difficult, is that from the day you register your bag and they do your contents check, they can stop you at any time and check your bag. And if you've discarded anything, you get penalized. Yeah. So if now not food because you could have consumed it, but if you say start the race with a pillow and you don't finish the race with the pillow, you run the risk of being caught. And if you're caught, you're penalized time penalties and like they issue water, but they ration it. And so you get a ration card. And if you need more water, it's a penalty. So like you learn all these tricks, the Asian runners are really small. I'm big. I'm like five foot nine and I need water. I'm a thirsty person. The Asians seem to drink half or a quarter of what they were allocated and then discard. I was picking up water from day two okay. and just drinking whoever. So I never took time penalty because there's no rules against drinking somebody else's discarded water. I sort of did a mental thing in my head where if they're fit enough to be here, they don't have any communicable yeah. diseases. <laughs> I'm taking that water. So that was it. You know, um, you almost wouldn't care. Oh, no, I did not care. Like, I did not care. care. The first two marathons I felt great, as I said, and was strong and thought, God, I'm, I'm, I can do this. There's no issues here. The third marathon was a different ballgame completely. I... So I'm going to get into that, all right? Yeah. Um, your kit. What yes. mistake did you make in your kit? I don't... I actually don't think I did make a mistake, which I am happy to say. Um, you do need like a jacket for nighttime, um, like a just a soft down jacket. Some people skipped that. They were saying, oh, it weighs too much and whatever. I was happy with it. I slept with it two of the nights. So it was good. I needed it for the warmth. As the race went on you get colder you're burning calories yeah, i lost shocking amount of weight i was really thin i just needed it for the warmth um i don't think there was anything in my bag i could have taken out you don't even bother with deodorant mm. because see to be truthful if you're not washing there's no point in using deodorant you know you're just building up a mess <laughs> who, ca who cares who cares anyway? nobody cares trust me <laughs> the smell is so horrendous you just become nose blind like you're immune to it I genuinely don't think, I think the only mistake I made with Kit was I took advice from one of the race organizers on the day of the Kit way. And he said, you've got an awful lot of food. I think you could do without some of it. And I put at that stage, a small bag of food into a bag, which they take away then. And they have waiting for you at the hotel at the finish line. And really, I regretted that mm -hmm. almost instantly. I wanted to just thought that he knew. Obviously, he's a race, I, he's a race organizer. organizer. But he says, no, no, nobody ever. Nobody ever runs out of food. Like, you know, you'll never eat all that food. But he doesn't know me. I'm an eater. What, what did you do coming to the race then? Did you stuff yourself full? 
The like, night, so two, I'm not going to eat now probably for five days. Well, so. two nights before the race, you're out there in the desert. So when they okay. transport you out, you arrive in the evening time and you go to bed that night. They provide you with food that night. Where do you go to bed? Is it, you're tenting there already? Yeah, but it's not a tent. It's an open shelter. And okay. there can be up to eight of you. Now, I was very lucky because the Irish um, had four dropouts. So it ended up just four of us. So we had tons of space. And once you're allocated a tent, you can't change. So that was us the whole race. Some tents were like sardines with eight people. Ours was just four. So it meant, although it was three fellas, we just spread right out. We had like our space every day. The tent moves. So when you run to your next finish line, they've already moved your tent. You know, your shelter and you're there. So when you arrive and you're given your allocation number, we all just went, well, hello, hello. You know, here I am. And they provided food that first night and it was basic stuff like bread and pasta. So we went to a big tent and we all ate and I did stuff myself. I read online and I heard people even on the night saying, well, I'm afraid I'm not eating that. We could get sick. And what if we got sick and whatever? I just thought like at this stage, number one, I have paid every penny for that food. And number two, I'm hungry. And like, I'm not eating my own food when they're giving me food. This yeah. is it. Like, so I ate loads that night. The next day they provide um, food again. And then the following day, which is when the race begins. So t- the other thing about this race, which is a bit sick, is that before you even run your first step, before you even hit the starting line, you are slightly dehydrated, totally sleep deprived, because you've had two nights sleeping mm. in the sand with a thousand plus other people who are up all night peeing, coughing, moving about, shuffling, changing over. And you, you, you've been in the heat and the sun for those couple of days, just standing in line, getting kit bags weighed, getting medical checks completed. And that was another big concern. Very tiring process. Then. They do that on purpose. They wear you down before you even start. It's all like psychological warfare. <laughs> it's crazy. But I also had this really big mental burden before the race started about my medical situation. And you pay all the money and there's no refund on the race. And if they decide that you aren't medically fit, they can just disqualify you before you even begin. So I had this letter, which you had to get from the doctor. And he just kind of said, I'm not not going to list this stuff. You have to list this stuff. So this, the big issue wasn't the car accident stuff because bones heal. It was that graft of the vein. And he was worried. He was not massively keen on signing anything. And then I got there and panicked. But in the end, I think if you looked fit, they didn't even really look at your certificate. And that's what happened. They just kind of lifted it, filed it with the rest and pushed me through. So it was a relief in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And then the starting line then, when you eventually got to the starting line, because there's some quite unique people. There's such in a range. You know, you have, I've heard of blind runners, amputees. Yep. And um, you've got the elites. Yep. And you've got people like yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Who are just there. Don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, but have been rebuilt almost. Yeah. 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 Um, like how was that? That must have been like, it's, wow. It's awesome. That is the only word. I mean, that's a very American word, but it is awesome because... The one thing Patrick does, and he does really well, and Patrick goes every year. Patrick lives with you in the camp and all. Now his tent is so the proper pa- tent. The guy Patrick that organizes. Is the guide. He's no, no, Patrick's the guy that started oh. the race. Patrick Bauer. Oh, so he's still doing it. He's still doing it. He Brilliant. gets there. He gets a Land Rover. He gets a big bullhorn. He's there from day one, and Brilliant. now he sleeps in luxury, and he's got Land Rovers taking him through the desert. But he loves to be a part of it, and yeah. so him and his, you know, French comrades are all there. And they get a helicopter, and the helicopter comes overhead, and they blast ACDC Highway to Hell. (laughs) 
And when you've watched it on TV, it's one that thing. But when you were standing there and sand is like blowing and the heat's going wow. and you're absolutely crapping yourself at the start of this race. And then that starts, it's like the hair in your arm stands up. And it was just awesome. You know, the super lates, you watch them in like awe and off they go. And then the normal people like would trudge. And I was a bit of a mid-pack, you know, kind of person. Yeah. And, and there are people with like exceptionally amazing human stories. And like you kind of gradually get like wind of them even if you don't meet them during the race you hear about them and they become like urban legend in the camp and can you think of one i have one who is my my one of my great friends now i'm very privileged to say i was in last year's race with the first ever double amputee to make it to the finish line his name is duncan slater so he um was scottish british became a british soldier lost his legs over an afghan um, and he had done the race in 2016 and been disqualified um, because his stumps were so, so badly damaged um, that the race organizer, Patrick's medical team, pulled him. They just said, look, this is like a death trip. You can't finish. You're, you're risking further amputation. You're going to do serious injury. That was the previous year. That was in 16. So he trained for 17. I had seen him on the news and I met him a couple times at the starting line and would just say, good luck, Duncan. And everybody was saying this to him. You know, everybody, there was over a thousand people. Wow, fair play to you. Well done. But there was something just instantly like where I thought about him a lot, like during the race. And I remember like a really difficult stage um, yeah. where we were going over a mountain. And I remember <clears> thinking like, it was almost like hands on the ground scrambling. I kept thinking like, how is he going to do this? Like, how the hell is he going to get up this in those amputations like it just was mind-boggling to me and even in my darkest parts I kept thinking if Duncan's finishing this race like I'm finishing this race you know there's no excuse for me and then just by pure chance when we got back to the hotel at the end there's multiple hotels but you're assigned a hotel at the completion of the race and he was in my hotel and we just met and we started chatting and then um we ended up being seated next to each other on the flight back and it was just like an instant kind of friendship that must have been amazing though uh, uh, like it actually, I remember when I was in camp after I had finished, um, and I was well rested and happiest I'd ever been in my life and felt great. And I remember somebody shouting, uh, the amputees coming across the finish line, everybody come out, everybody come out. And I remember thinking, he's still out there. Oh my God. Like it was hours we had been across the finish line and we all ran up and we just cheered and it was just such a feeling of like mm. elation for everyone but he's just the most genuinely nice guy. And he's come over a couple times since we've become friends and he's flown over and stayed and we've trained together and stuff. And... It's beautiful to meet people like that. Oh my God. Because everyone sort of thinks that their burden is the heaviest until you meet somebody yeah. who's got much deeper sort of burden. Big they're, time. They're yeah. achieving so much. Oh yeah. That sort of breaks down your own limits then, doesn't and it? And the blind runner, there was a blind runner in our race who was tethered to their guide and like, we were doing the night stage of the race. So there is one stage of the race, which is two marathons in the one day. And absolutely as brutal as that sounds, it is. But bizarrely, once you get the first marathon done, you have a choice of how you play it. And people play it all different ways. You can push straight through and do the second one or you can sleep. Now I chose, and I knew this was the decision for me before I even went to the desert, that I couldn't sleep. I had to push through and get them both done. Because I thought if I laid down and my legs seized up or something happened. On the double. Yeah. I had to go and just push through the night. So that was my plan always. But when we hit one of the checkpoints for water around, I don't know, 10 or 11 at night and it was dark and whatever, it was really eerie. You'd see like head torches. 
I saw the French runner and his guide laying in the sand, like totally flat, like against each other so that he wouldn't get confused or lost. I just remember thinking like how remarkable it was that this guy was doing this. Like how awesome, <laughs> like to put yourself in that position, like, and also for his guide, yeah. like Jesus. And <laughs> but just the whole time, I remember meeting all these people, like, you know, there was other wounded um, veterans on Duncan's Walking with the Wounded team too that were missing limbs and different things and had bad injuries. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, like this just shows you anything is possible, you know. So we're going into the first stage then. Uh, yeah. It's five days altogether. First stage, first marathon. Mm-hmm. How'd that go for you? Slow, I mean, slow. There's no, like, I I mean, so slow that it was crawl. What was the ground like? Because it's... The, the massive variation. So, and it's not what you expect. People think the desert, like soft sand. No, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is like Mourn Mountain scree and rock. Um, and then, you know, day one, stage one, I, I can't say specifically or remember exactly, but I know that there was a lot of ups and downs and you know, massive hills, and then you kind of get a big, strong, big, long flat. Was the flats were the worst. Was... No, because no, I don't think any, even watching the videos and stuff, I don't think any amount of preparation can prepare you, you know, for what you're going to come across. I thought the hills would be the worst. They were not. The hills, actually, the girl that I ended up kind of running with, she was in the tent next to mine, and we stayed at the same pace. She was like, I don't understand where you get the energy on the hills. It was the flats that killed me, because the heat radiated out of the ground, and I just felt like I was cooking. Like there was one point on maybe the second marathon where I actually felt like the measurable heat out of the ground had to be hotter than the inside of an oven. Like your shoes so what were... what shoes were you wearing? Well, this is always a big bone of contention amongst MDS runners as to what shoes to wear. I train in Salmon. Salmon works for my feet. I have like long skinny feet. I knew that the speed cross weren't good for the desert because of the lugs. They can mm. like melt in that heat and the, the rubber can pull off so i went with salmon marins and it was just a chance guess work you go up at a size size and a half too big because your feet swell like crazy yeah. my feet were destroyed by the race to be truthful um i was very lucky that i didn't get infection and all the open wounds that i had but I, I went with the marin and it worked i got my gaiters you wear sand gaiters they like cover the shoe and cover your foot there was no issue with sand in my shoes. That wasn't the problem. Yeah. It was the swelling and the salt yeah. tablets. You, It's compulsory that you take the salt tablets and they cause you to retain water. So like your feet just balloon. At the end of the race, my feet ballooned so badly I couldn't get the back in shoes. I had like elephantitis in the feet. They were like crazy. And that type of heat and that sun. Yeah. I mean, coming from Northern Ireland. There was no... How, how did you protect yourself from the sun? Well, I mean, I am lucky in so much as I'm not fully Irish. I am partially Irish but my mother's side is French Canadian and they have darker skin so I didn't burn um the Irish teammates that I was with cooked um some of them wore like white boiler suits around the camp um like Tyvek suits because they couldn't expose their skin I was lucky in so much as that's not my that wasn't my problem I didn't the other thing about the heat was I didn't train for the heat because I just kind of firmly believe that you can't if you live in a climate like here I think you can pay to use a heat chamber at University of Ulster. Mm. It's pretty significant, the cost. I don't know that the benefits... That's why you want out of the race, doesn't it, really? Yeah, but I also don't even know that the benefits of that could last. Because yeah. when you come out of the heat chamber, you're back <laughs> into the cold air. You know, cold, wet air. So I just don't know how it translates. For me, I just knew, take it slow. And so that worked. Lying down then the first night in your sleeping bag, 10, yeah. 100, yeah. of strange people. Three strange um, people, Yeah. <laughs> How did you, what were you thinking then? 
were you excited? Were you apprehensive? I was excited and I think instantly, like bizarrely, comfortable. Because mm. I like that atmosphere. I loved the campsites. I thought my favorite part of the whole race was the communal part of it, coming back Brilliant. to the tent. There wasn't always a lot of conversation, especially once the race gets going. You're tired when you get back to tents and stuff. But I just loved being out there. It's like such an adventure. And what, what time did you start in the morning then? So they're very cruel too because they could start the race really early and avoid like the midday sun, but they don't. Starting line is like 8.30 in the morning. Wow. So midday heat stuff. And when does, yeah, when does the sun come up? Is it an early Oh sun? no, yeah. I mean, 5 a.m. they come around and start taking down your shelters. They sort of wake you by driving through the camp and the and the big uh, land rovers and dismantling as you're laying there. Sounds like a bit of a hell week. It is. It's literally like <laughs> you paid for this. Like why would you pay for this? But... Once they start doing that and you kind of get in the routine of it, it gives you enough time in the morning then to hydrate and eat and pack. And then your start line, you know, for 8, 8.15, whatever it was. So st- stage two then, you moved into it and did it go pretty much the way day one did? Yeah, you're still pretty much maybe picked up the pace a bit, probably passed a few more people than I had on day one, felt strong, felt fine. Your motivation was still... Very, very strong. Yeah, like big into the psychological side of stuff I had this in my head I had like a mantra I just kept you know I can do the left foot right foot thing for hours clear my mind just keep my tunnel vision and I was fine third stage was the one that shook me yeah. Um, I was great until mile 20 and the last six miles was straight flat plane and it hit 50 degrees wow and I was done. I was cooked. I had run out of um, my rehydration tablets um, that were allocated for that day. Now you have a choice, but it's a pretty crucial choice. You can tap into what you've set aside for another day, but you're putting yeah. yourself chronically behind at that stage. And I knew the double was coming. So I couldn't, how could I tap into the double day supply when that's going to be the hardest challenge? So I didn't. It's quite a balance you have to get because you've got that. The biggest challenge is on the last stage. It's not the last stage. There's a marathon after that. It's oh, the fourth it? stage. Even it's even worse. It's, <laughs> it's even, even worse. Crueler. Because it's not just it what's out. left. You can yeah. blow it all out. So it's a very strategic race. Completely. There's a lot of like psychological stuff that goes into it. You have to really plan. Um, and you, you have that choice. It's your choice. Mm. You can tap into that bag. Go right and ahead. What, what did but... you do for mental training before the end? race then do you do mindfulness or anything i like do that? mindfulness yeah mm-hmm. i'll give a little plug to the uh, neuro positive living i i would do that anyways but i really enjoy going once a month on a friday down and listening to all kinds of yeah. other people and their experiences you find that helped you obviously then going through the race and keeping your mind where you wanted it to be i almost think maybe i'm speaking too broadly here that it would be impossible mm-hmm. to complete that race if you weren't mindful <laughs> if you weren't <laughs> self-aware if you weren't able to just be in the moment and focused and you know if you weren't didn't have that like acute awareness i think how how could you manage this because yeah. you need yeah you definitely need that. you have you have to start working against your brain then because your, your mind is trying to protect your body and you're in an unsafe environment yeah so your, your mind is going to tell you it's trying to shut quit. you down quit <laughs> yeah yeah quit like just keeps like you know what are you doing and of course like self-doubt creeps in even for the strongest people yeah. like for me, those last six miles, there was a, like a real question of like, you're a mother. Like, what are you doing here? Like, this was stupid. Like, why did you sign yeah. up for this? And like, this is misery. Like, you're sick. This is hot. You're getting ill. <laughs> I cross that finish line. And every day when you cross the finish line, they give you a hot mint tea. And it was 50 degrees. 
And when I crossed the finish line that day, I drank the hot mint tea and I was shaking with the cold. And if I had been seen by any of the race organizers, I would have been yeah. put in the medical tent and given a drip. And I would have, so I would have had a two hour time um, penalty for that. I didn't see anybody from the race. I went in my tent and I crawled into my sleeping bag and it was a guy from Donegal in the sleeping bag across from me and he knew and he said, uh, uh-uh, uh, you have to eat and drink and you're, you're sick. Yeah. You have sunstroke. You got to eat and drink. And I had my down jacket on and it was still in the forties yeah. and I was cold and he said, no, I know you're sick. Like you bet you've got no choice here. And it was the worst night. Like I had cooked myself food and I used my buff off my head to try and lift the hot pot. But because I was still like disoriented, it caught on fire. And I burnt <laughs> my hand and dropped my food into the sand. But then I had to eat what was in the sand because I had no choice. I had no other food with me. So it was just like, it was just hell. So I ate sand and food mixed together. I had burn in my hand. The buff had a big hole in it. It was Good like... Job. Don't mind this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I just kept going, what am I doing here? But... It was amazing. I went to bed that night. I slept really well that night. I don't know how. I think sheer exhaustion. And I woke up totally in the right place for the stage four, which was the right. double. I just was there. And I actually ended up being interviewed that morning. They made a documentary, just a brief one, the MDS organizers, about the women of the MDS. And of all the days, like they came around, I looked like absolute hell at this stage, but they were there with their camera like in your face. And they were like, are you ready for it? And I said, you know what? Yeah, as long as my body holds out, my mind is crossed that finish yeah. line. Like, I'm there. Brilliant. Yeah. So the fourth stage then, this is when it really happens. This is a test of endurance, yeah. test, physical, mental, everything gets tested on the fourth stage. I think the fourth stage is the most mental part of the race. Mm-hmm. But like, it definitely is. Because you, you've physically proven you can run three marathons in that heat. You can be there. You can finish those. You're capable. And that's why they put it further into the race because they if they put it too early in the race you could have people dying and people do die doing this race yeah. I mean it's mental like but actually on day three we passed a guy in cardiac arrest and he was helicoptered to Spain I and mean, he survived there were nobody passed away during our race but people were pretty damn close like there was people who had CPR were really in bad ways and major issues with dehydration yeah. Um, so stage four is, is tactfully placed at that, strategically placed at that level where you've completed your three, you've proven you can do it, you're not disqualified yet. And people were getting disqualified every day by not making time cutoffs or just dropping out. You know, like, I'm, I can't do this. I'm out of here. So when you get to that stage, it's been whittled down a little bit. And you know now you've got to play this one right because if you can get through it, you only have one marathon left. You could crawl that one at that stage. Yeah. You're going to finish. So I think for me, I knew I was afraid of the heat on day four. And, I, and it was a healthy fear. So I changed my whole tactic. I spent longer in shelters where you stopped for water. I tried to spend, I didn't care about time at all, at all, mm. at all. I knew I would make the cutoffs. There are time cutoffs for every water checkpoint. If you don't make them, you're disqualified. The, what is the distance between the checkpoints then? Um, it varies. And it massively varies based on the terrain. But it can be anything up to a 10K. You know, there's a lot of water in the desert to have to manage, you know, six miles plus in a desert environment where you, where you just have, I mean, I, I'm a drinker, so like an eater, I went through my water too quickly a lot, but, and then I would be like sipping. How much water would you drink in that period? Well, they would issue at various checkpoints, they would issue you two liter and a half bottles of water 
you know, 1.5. Quite a weight. But it's a weight. This is the issue. But you cannot not take it because you need it. So it's all a balancing act. And then you've got your salt you have to factor in. And you're taking your salt tablets. And have I taken them? And then you get delirious. And I mean, the girl in Tent 99, Jane, who, as I said, we just happened to pace together. We agreed then on the third day that, look, we'll finish this race together. We'll go through stage four together. We'll, We'll make it happen. We would look at each other and go, did we... We're going to take salt. Did we take the salt? And she'd be like, I think we took it. Did we take it? And it just became this bizarre, you're almost in this strange headspace because you're you're chronically under pressure. But we both kind of towed the party line of push through. Don't stop. If we stop, we're going to make things harder for ourselves. And in the end, that was the right decision. The nighttime part of the race was actually the most enjoyable. This is a different experience then on this day going into the night. Um Mary Hickey, I don't know if you know Mary Hickey, she ran around the coast of Ireland there, she's 65. Oh, right, okay, no. Um, she stayed in my house during that journey. Wow. And she done it. She done the NDS as well. Oh, cool. And she said at night time they had glow sticks. You do, on yeah. The back, but she was a bit delirious and she was following somebody, but they kept them going behind the dune and she was getting lost. Oh, no. <laughs> and she was trying to keep up with them. Yes. And all of a sudden they would pop up again. And, and I mean, she... that was a fear for me because my navigation is terrible. <laughs> Um, I was afraid of getting lost and you know I had like read these horror stories about people who got lost and were like found three days later or like yes. somebody was like six I read days about um, this, a fellow called Moro Prosperi he's an Olympian I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly like, yeah. uh, he's from Sicily but he went off course for 299 kilometers yes he went missing for 11 days yes and got found in Algeria yes I read about him like, and that wow. scared the pants of me <laughs> But the elite apparently, runners. Apparently he survived on drinking bat blood and his drink was on urine. Yeah. That's not what I wanted. No. That's no. <laughs> <laughs> not where I wanted to be. But it has to be a worry if you've got an Olympian. Big time. Know, but I do have to say what I was reassured about in a sense from my friend Ian who did the MDS was that it's more the elites that are likely to go off trail because they're setting the course in a sense. They're out there at the yeah. front. So if you're a mid-packer you're way less likely to get lost. Now... That is way more true during the day than it is at night because, as I said, you have all these people with different tactical plans about how they're doing their double. So the night stage spread out significantly. And, I mean, Jane and I found ourselves alone a lot. And also, the night stage of the race is the only time we saw the other threatening things that were in the desert that we hadn't seen every other time we had been out or sleeping. And that was a scorpion almost immediately as the sunset came across the path and and a massive poisonous snake. And then we sort of both thought to each other, like looked at each other and went, no, we're definitely not laying down tonight. (laughs) We're definitely going to keep moving. And it was so funny because, I mean, we had slept soundly like right up until that. And then by the time you get back to camp, when you finally finished it, you forgot about the scorpion and the snake and you did not care, you know. What was the biggest challenge of that stage? I I know this sounds strange. I didn't find that stage challenging. And the reason for that is I had suffered so badly the day before that everything at that point was moving back up and I was on the up and up. Jane did suffer. She had um, a vision that she could see the camp as dawn broke and we were coming across this like flat plateau. I have terrible vision anyways. I couldn't see it. I kept saying, I don't see it. Oh, it's definitely there. I can see it. But it was never getting any closer. <laughs> she had like a Tourette's moment where she just lost it. And she like every swear word you've ever heard came out of her mouth. And she just like had a moment. And we, we both kind of laugh about it now. Like it was the funniest thing. Because then she pulled it back together and she was fine. The exhaustion you feel though after that is like indescribable. I tell the story to my boys who love it because boys are gross. 
Jane and I were so tired that at one point we were both peeing and we were like kind of crouched down a little bit, but you couldn't crouch, you couldn't crouch anymore. You were basically peeing standing. You couldn't bend your legs. And I said, Jane, she said, what? And I said, you're peeing on me. And she went, oh, sorry. (laughs) But neither of us took the physical step that was needed to stop it. I could have stepped like two steps to the left or she could have stepped two steps to the right. But she just apologized and continued because neither of us had the human energy. And like, that's the thing about it. Like you start with a bit of dignity and by day one or halfway through day one, you're like, hold on a minute. If I walk 20 steps off the trail here to pee, I'm using 40 extra steps. Like my legs can't do this. You don't care anymore. You just literally, it becomes so basically human that you don't care about anything anymore you just want to finish that friggin' race you would pee anywhere you don't care about who's watching your decency and dignity go out the window but it's a, an exhaustion that's tough to understand unless your body has been through that it's but, eating but it itself. must be a great place to go to i don't mean love it i mean actually that Mentally. physical mental state yeah um because you really don't know what you're capable of doing. Until you've done it. Until you've done it. And yeah. that has just takes you to a totally different level. Totally. There's like a euphoria that comes after it. Like I, my feet were indescribably bad after that double stage. And when I got to the tent, the swelling. In fact, I will tell you this as well. When we kind of crossed the final stage of dunes, a South African guy was behind us. And your name is on your back. So it was like Lauren USA or whatever. And he said, Lauren USA. And I said, oh yeah, thanks. And he said, no, no, I need to talk to you. And I said like, okay. So I stopped and he said, I'm Dan, I'm Dr. Dan. And I said, oh, nice to meet you, Dr. Dan. And he said, no, I'm, I'm worried. And I said, why? And he said, your leg is in a bad way. Your right leg, which is the one with the most damage from the accident. I didn't even notice. It had swollen to twice its size. My lower limb was like the calf was retaining so much fluid. It was massive. So he like had me lay down in the sand and he checked for clots and he was concerned. He was concerned enough that even after he finished the double, he found my tent and checked on me again. So he knew I wasn't going to the medical tent. (laughs) He came and found me. But it was just, you know, the injury. When, When you're injured and you're putting your body into that level of, you know, hardship, yeah. old injuries flare up and injuries like the injuries I have, they really massively flare up. But I got to the tent when we crossed that finish line that day and I was so ecstatic. I would just, cause I knew now I was finishing the MDS. This, that was when I really knew. I mean, I always knew, but I, this was yeah. like case affirmed. I didn't care what it took. I was finished in the final marathon. But I got into the tent and I laid down and I took off my shoes. And then I realized that was a little bit of a mistake because I couldn't get my shoes back on. My feet had swollen so badly. So that night I slept with shoes because I, I once I got my foot shoved back in after the swelling came down, I thought I better keep my feet in shoes. <laughs> it's funny that I've interviewed a few ultra runners. Yeah. And my wife always gives off me because I always come home with another seed planted. Yeah. I'm not feeling that way. <laughs> no. No. And it's like the pictures of my feet, like I sent home and my parents were like, why? Like, I just don't understand because toenails had all popped off. I think I had like two or three toenails left. I mean, I had these massive open blisters and the French have a bizarre um, way about them when it comes to this. Like 
they are ruthless. It's a French Foreign Legion and that, that started the race. And the medics have this like sick fascination with your blisters. So when you finish a stage, you can queue with no penalty and get your blisters treated. You go to this like medical tent and you stand in line for like hours. But you, it is the only place in the world that you will hear men screaming like a labor ward. <laughs> it's unreal. Because they just take a scalpel and they cut the blisters off. Yeah. Because if they leave the sack, fluid sack, it will refill. So their theory is, no, they hack the whole blister off and then they inject it with iodine. And Jesus, the agony of that is unreal. So in the beginning, you think, no, I'm not going there. I will treat it myself. But when your feet get bad enough, which inevitably mine did, you have to face it. You have to go there. And I mean, it was just hell. And you're so taped then. And oh, another mistake I did make, which I have definitely learned from was... I'm probably the only human to get trench foot in the desert. Now, like, how the hell do you get trench foot in a desert? I will tell you how. I got my, my feet taped on day three, and the tape was so thick, and it was so well placed, that I was afraid for the double stage that if I took it all off, I wouldn't be able to retape it yeah. myself. So I left it. And when I did the double stage, none of the moisture from the sweat was getting off my feet. So it was, although my feet were in the sand... It was as if they had been immersed in water for 23 hours. So when I finished the double stage and I took scissors to cut the tape off, the skin was all coming off. Oh, so it was just, they looked like they had been in a bathtub of water for 24 hours. And I ended up having to lay in the sun with my feet and like watch under the skin, the water coming up. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was so gross. So at the end of that full stage then, how, how are you feeling then? Because you know it's sort of, that's the hard bit over and you've sort of played it right. You, you've not got much food left though. Yeah. Um, but you know it's going to be done. I knew it was done. Um, I was so... just euphoric. And in fact, um, I hadn't slept through that whole night and I was so ecstatic when I got back to the tent. I felt like I couldn't sleep, but I also knew I still did have the one more marathon. So Jane's father had run the MDS the year before and he said, Jane, I'm going to put an emergency supply in your backpack and you'll know what it is for when you need it. So Jane looked in her backpack when she got there and he had put in Valium. And he said, if you can't sleep, you're going to take a Valium. So Jane had told me about this. So when we got back to the camp, I couldn't sleep. It was the middle of the day. It was hot then and it was all the excitement and whatever. So she gave me a Valium and like, I don't even know what happened. It was hilarious. Like it was just like, whew, out for the count. And thank God for it because I slept for a few hours only, but it just knocked me out. And then I got up that night. I did my bits, hydrated. I looked at the very measly supply. And the thing is, they are quite strict. You stay at any point can check your bag and you still have to have the equivalent of 2000 calories for that final day. So I was looking at the bag thinking, shit, like there's probably not, I'm very close to the line here on this one because I had tapped into it, you know, but I had, I didn't get checked and I had just enough and I, I ate what I had and finished it. I mean, I finished that last marathon on very little food, um, but I feel like I've been right through it now. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's suffering. It's misery, but it's it really amazing. Like, so yeah. Just explain that amazing part of it then, because you're coming to the end of the last marathon. You've got like a mile left to go. Yeah, it's like, just pure euphoria. Me. Like for me, it was like floating on the air. I just felt like it was the greatest achievement of my life, bar my children, you know. And I felt it like immensely proud because of the children as well. My husband has achieved an amazing amount in his life. 
you know, and he, the kids think, you know, he walks on air and he's great and all the rest of it. And I have boys there. They like grit and hard work and things. This was something that they could really relate to. And I, I just felt like so proud that I had done it as a mother, that I could like go home to these beautiful kids of mine and go back to being a mother and they could see how much you can achieve. And yeah. I just had this like overwhelming sense of happiness. Did you cry? I thought I would cry. I'm kind of bizarre. Like people say I'm emotionally stunted or something. <laughs> I honestly wanted to cry. Like envisioned myself crying. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't cry. I don't think I had any tears left. I was dehydrated. Yeah, maybe I had a it. photograph of the kids. On one side it was laminated and the other side it said she believed she could. So she did. It was just like this mantra thing that resonated with me that I had printed off. And I crossed the finish line with that. I had a vision from the day I signed up for the race of cross on the finish line. And in my vision, it was always with the photograph of the kids. And I knew that was the way I was going to finish the yeah. race. And that's the way I did finish it. It's very powerful that, isn't it? You can have that vision. Yeah, and all yeah. All of a sudden, you realize it. It was amazing to pull it out. Like, I had it there in the front pocket of the backpack. Everything stunk and smelled and was disgusting at this stage. And the sweat was unreal. And I even when I was, like, struggling, I would just reach into the backpack and touch it. And I knew it was there. And then I knew I was fine. And then when I, I got so excited because I had like a little American flag and this and I was ready and like about a mile from the finish line, I had them out because I was like not going to miss this moment. I was going to come across that like last and Patrick's there. He puts the medal on your neck and he kisses you Brilliant. and I practically made out with him. <laughs> I was like, give me a kiss. <laughs> I am done. I'm never coming back. But you get these people you meet that do it more than once. And I'm convinced it goes back to Sebastian Younger's tribe. I think it's that they go back for that, the living, mm. the atmosphere. They don't go back for that physical misery. They go back for all the other stuff that it entails. It truly is the toughest foot race in the, on the planet. Yeah. And now here's where like, oh God, we'll have another argument. But uh, my husband did the jungle marathon. So it's the same exact setup, yeah. six and five, blah, blah, blah. It's in, well, he did it in Manus down in Belize or no, sorry, not Belize in Brazil. And he swears that was the toughest. I say, Puh, it was not. You were in water at parts of it. You know, you were, they were in rivers and different things. And, you know, there's arguably any of those, any of that type of race. But, I mean, I, I just think for temperatures, yeah. the Sahara, for the sheer brutality of the desert, there's no escaping the so, heat there. How did you feel when you came home then? Because obviously you've been wanting to do that really for two years. Then you got into it six months ago. Yeah. Um, then you lived through that experience. And then what? Um, I felt immensely proud. The one thing that happens, and it does happen, I've seen it happen with my husband, with other expeditions and stuff, is there's an instant what's next from people. Mm. And from yourself. Because then you know you're capable of like all these crazy things. So when I first came home, I was instantly going to do an Ironman. Because of course I can do an Ironman if I can do this. You know, in my own head. These were the things I was saying. But then I realized like, I have injuries. <laughs> like, my body probably needs a break. I don't know that I gave myself as much of a break as I should have. I kept with kind of big training. Not as much in the running. I picked up distance swimming. I did a, an open race down in Cork in the Atlantic. Um... I did like a half marathon run, half marathon row back to back. I did some other big things, kept training, probably should have given myself a little bit more of a break and didn't. Then I just have tapered down a bit and then took on a new commitment, which is um, for my son. So I'm coming to the big 4-0 
in October and I wanted to do something and I, I thought about all kinds of things. English Channel Relay was one um, and I was very keen to do it but my injury as of recent with the new screw sent me back several months in training and then I thought what could I do and do it with the kids and it, Connor just has turned 11 which means you have to be 10 legally to climb Kilimanjaro so I said right well this is it and we looked it up and we realized that there was no one from here close to that age that had done it in the north so the hope is that Connor in October will be coming with me right. to Kilimanjaro and be the youngest kid from Northern Ireland to climb it. Sort of following his parents' footsteps, really. He is definitely very similar to his mum and dad when it yeah. comes to sports and stuff, yeah. It's quite amazing, though, to see your children. They just inspire to be their parents. Big time, yeah. Although their personalities are so unique, too. Like, my younger child... Today we summited Sleep Donard um, and you know it's it's an effort the whole time with him he just doesn't love it <laughs> you know he likes it when he's done and he's down and he gets an ice cream or something but you know he's not whereas the older child the one that's coming for Kilimanjaro it's just more in him that's his thing you know he yeah. he has an affinity to it almost naturally and always sort of did. Um, which is why I know it's the right choice to take him because people have questioned probably a little bit like they questioned my sanity with the MDS. People have questioned, well, like, why would you take an 11 year old to climb a 19 and a half thousand foot mountain? That's nuts. I know Connor's capabilities and I think um, I know my own capabilities. I feel like all the experience I have had over the years in all those scenarios <clears throat> makes me well placed to know what's right and what's not right. And I'm not guaranteeing he'll make the summit. I know in my heart he's very capable and I think we're probably really likely to do it, but I'm also not going to take chances with him, you know? Yeah, 100%. Like, um, my son, he summited Donald, he was six years old, it was on my birthday. Yeah. We just wanted to take him up to the Hairs Gap. Yep. Then he wanted to go further and he wanted to go further. Yeah. So he goes, okay, we'll take you to the bottom of Donald. And then Next thing. He wanted to go yeah. up, so we went up. <laughs> and he's only six years yeah. old. You know. They do just some kids just have it in them, you yeah. know. They do definitely. They're self-driven, and Connor's very much like that, and he's very competitive. So Lauren, that was absolutely brilliant. Thanks yeah. very much. You're very welcome. Um, I feel scared, feel fear, but I also feel excitement as well. The prospects of doing a race as uh, crazy <laughs> <laughs> and as as tough as that. It's really one to have on the bucket list. I oh, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, that is one thing I guess I would conclude with is. Put it on the bucket list, but don't put it off because it's a, it is a better, it's a young man's game, like, you know, a young woman's game. Um, although with age, you, you get wiser. Um, it's still physically very demanding. So go for it, but go for it soon. <laughs> on that. Thanks Thank you. very much.